So in our last uh, post, we posted about um, the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ, past, present, and future. And in the midst of that, I alluded to a question that had come up in my email, and I went back and uh, and I had not answered that question more directly in any previous post, and so I wanted to go ahead and uh, and address it more fully today. This comes from Phil. Uh, and an email that he sent regarding the millennial kingdom and our ruling and reigning along with Christ in it. Uh, his email began with a lot of very kind things. I appreciate that very, very much. And then uh, the email continues, however, I have another topic which is not a deal breaker, but in all my years studying eschatology, I've yet to be able to personally resolve. And it's with regard to the millennial kingdom. I note from your recent video that you refer to Colossians 3 verse 4 and Revelation 19 verse 14 as evidence toward the idea that we, uh, either raptured or resurrected believers, will reign with Jesus in that future kingdom back on earth. He continues, I'm not so certain about that. Firstly, I have yet to find any scripture which makes this a clear-cut certainty. And secondly, I kind of feel that uh, it would mean that the rapture would not be the end of our sorrow or experience the curse of the curse or of sin or of death. All of these things could, and according to Isaiah 65.20 will, happen even during that final earthly kingdom. Uh, And then, of course, at the end of the kingdom comes the final great rebellion, the release of Satan, and the final judgment. Do we really have to go through all of this, even after having died in Christ and been resurrected or raptured to heaven previously? Instead, it would seem more logical to me that those who die for their faith during the tribulation are the ones who are resurrected at his second coming to reign with him during that period, as this then links the the final 70th week of Daniel, which is focused on Israel, uh, with the millennial kingdom, a fulfillment of a promise made to Israel. Does this make sense? Uh, it does make sense. And, and let me start by just quickly touching on uh, the last part there. Um, those saints that are killed during the tribulation period, in other words, those who come to faith during the tribulation after the rapture of the church during the 70th week of Daniel, um, I believe those are resurrected as we go into the millennial kingdom. And I also believe, and I think there's scripture to bear this out in the Old Testament, that um, that those Old Testament saints as well, like David and others who died in faith, also would be resurrected to enter into the millennial kingdom. After all, it is a kingdom promised to them and so uh, uh, to Israel. So it, it seems to me to make sense that they would be resurrected during that time. And again, I think there's some scripture to support that as well. Um, however, uh, is it uh, is it a painful time for us to have to go through that? I mean, is do we not leave all of the sorrow and suffering and pain and all those things that are part of this world behind when we are raptured or if we just die in Christ during uh, the the age we're currently living in, the age of grace, uh, prior to the 70th week of Daniel? Um, I don't know that we would necessarily see that as a painful time or a difficult time because um, when uh, and, and by the way, just to kind of, uh, for those who may not have heard the references to Revelation 19 and also uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, uh, Colossians 3, verse 4, I think is Paul's preemptive mention of something that, that, that John describes in the book of Revelation, where when he return, where, when Christ returns in glory, we will also return with him, as he says in Colossians. This takes place in Revelation 19, verse 11. 
However, the uh, a further reference that I think helps to make this point uh, is actually found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Now, when the chapters and verses, uh, the chapters and verses in Scripture are helpful because they help us find passages and reference passages. However, um, and I'm not saying Phil doesn't know this by any means, most of us do know this, that the chapter and verses were not part of the original manuscripts. They were added much later for those purposes, to be able to reference passages and find things easier. Uh, however, um, the, the passages themselves are written as a, an ongoing thought. Not that there aren't changes in thought, and sometimes the chapter breaks and such help to you know, clarify that. But in a place like Revelation 19 and 20, it, it doesn't necessarily create any, it's, it's not intended to create any kind of a break. There's not any natural break in that discussion from the return of Christ, throwing down Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, foregoing the, the judgment seat, but just being cast into the pit entirely, uh, just uh, without even having to stand judgment. They're just, they're cast into their final destination. It then goes on to describe how all of those who fought alongside of the Antichrist and the false prophet are then killed by the Lord, um, and they will await judgment, but they are killed, and so they're no longer part of the picture. And then it goes on to describe how Satan is then bound and cast into the pit where he will be for a thousand years. And as the thought continues to unfold, it mentions in verse 4, and I saw thrones, uh, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Well, the question comes up, who are the them? Who's in view in that passage in verse 4? Well, again, I think because this is a continuing description of, a, of, an, on, of a, 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 an ongoing unfolding event, the them to me naturally seems to be those who come with Christ at his return. And so I think that is one area where it begins to describe um, where we will rule and reign with Christ when he returns. There's another passage too, by the way, in... Um, uh, in Second uh, Timothy, uh, let's see here. Second Timothy chapter two. Uh, let me find it here. Second Timothy two verse. Tw- uh, here it is. Twelve. Um, verse eleven. It's it's almost kind of. Um, it's not really a creed per se, but it's an interesting the way this is laid out. Paul says here to Timothy in, in verse 11 of chapter 2, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he, uh, he, will, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So the idea of enduring with him and then reigning with him. Now, we don't reign in heaven per se because it, there's, there's nothing to reign over in heaven. Heaven is uh, God's um, throne, and, and, and he rules and reigns throughout eternity in that capacity. But the idea of reigning seems to be in, uh, it seems to fit naturally in the context of a millennial kingdom. Now, by the way, um, the millennial kingdom, for those who are um, not terribly familiar, most, most who I've been following these posts probably are, but for any sort of newcomers that aren't really sure what this is, the millennial kingdom is a, a kingdom that Christ establishes very specifically to answer um, the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. In a prayer typically we refer to as either the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. Um, it's probably not totally accurate to call it the Lord's Prayer, except that it's the prayer that the Lord gave his disciples to pray. 
It's not something the Lord himself would pray, though, because in that prayer, there's mention of, of, of sin and that kind of thing, forgiveness of sin. Of course, Christ had no sin. And so, um, but in regard to verse 10 of, of Matthew chapter 6, he invites his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, now, it is significant to recognize that while the church has embraced this prayer and has called for the Lord to come back with his established kingdom, it is significant to recognize that the first ones he teaches to pray this are Jews, his followers. Um, and so this is something that would have resonated with them immediately because they lived under the Messianic hope of the Messiah coming and establishing his kingdom. This is, of course, evident, as we've mentioned many times previously in Acts chapter 1, where they ask Jesus about his return to establish his kingdom. Um, you know, will you then restore the kingdom to Israel, as it says? So it's important for us to understand something. The millennial kingdom is not a figurative, symbolic thing. It is not um, a, a sort of vague concept that sort of, um, you know, is meant to be seen as allegorical. It actually is a very specific fulfillment of promises made to Israel. Uh, it is significant to note that in throughout the Old Testament, not just the New Testament where it's mentioned, and by the way, the word millennium only shows up once in the Bible, and that's in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 20, but the concept of this, of this kingdom established on earth is something that is well attested to throughout the Old Testament, and again, referenced in the New Testament. Um, for example... Um, in uh, places like, uh, let's look at a few actually. Why don't you, as, as always, I, my hope is that you've got your Bible ready to go. So maybe you want to you know, grab it and we'll look at a few passages here. But in particular, let's look at uh, Daniel chapter 2. Now in Daniel chapter 2, um, Daniel is, is among the wise men in Babylon. Um, he is tasked by Nebuchadnezzar to interpret a dream, but not just interpret a dream that he had, but in order to demonstrate and, 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 you know, test them to see if they're actually legit wise men, he also wants them to tell him what his dream was. Well, nobody can do that except for Daniel, who gives credit to God, who gives, uh, who answers such prayers and gives such dreams. And so Daniel goes on to tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and also then to interpret it. Uh, this, of course, is the the, um, the 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 dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of this image with himself as the head of gold, and then these these um, series of metals that that's that um, are emblematic of or symbolic, I should say, of various kingdoms that come after the Babylonian Empire, ultimately um, um, coming down to finally a revived Roman Empire, and then in the days of that empire. There is a rock cut without hands in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that comes and strikes at the feet of this statue. It comes crashing down. This is a kingdom that will um, be established and will never end. And that is what Daniel says in chapter 2, verse 44, as he concludes the, the interpretation of this dream, where he says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Uh, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, this kingdom that comes is one that strikes at earthly kingdoms, and it strikes them down and is established and never ends. Well, that takes place, presumably, there's no reason to think otherwise. This kingdom comes on the heels, pun intended, as it strikes at the, the heel of these, and, and is established on the earth. 
Now, in Daniel chapter 7, there is mentioned, and even in Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there is mention about how this kingdom engulf, you know, basically encircles the earth. I think in Daniel chapter 7, there's reference to this, certainly in Daniel chapter 2, where this, this kingdom is established and it goes around the entire earth. And so the intention in this seems clearly to be, and again, I'm somebody who believes we should take the passage at at face value, plain sense, what it says is what it means, unless there is a very clear reason to to see it otherwise. Uh, This dream speaks of a kingdom coming at the end of man's dominion on the earth to establish a kingdom uh, that in Daniel chapter 7 is is ascribed to the ancient of days. Daniel gets a very, uh, uh, gets the same information given to him in a different uh, vision and with different idioms or uh, uh, symbolism, but it gives the same uh, the same meaning as to be taken from it. So that's one place where it comes up. Another one would be if you want to turn uh, one book to your left, Ezekiel uh, chapter thirty seven. Uh, look at verse twenty six. Uh, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary. Uh, in their midst forever, uh, forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Well, that never happened yet. Uh, for one thing, the temple is not even existing anymore. Uh, however, we are waiting for a third temple to be built. This is true not just from passages like this, but we also know this from passages like Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul talks about the Antichrist going into that temple, or the man of sin, son of perdition, as he refers to him. We also recognize that there is uh, Jesus' reference to the uh, abomination of desolation of, interestingly, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, uh, which stands in the holy place. Well, that has not happened historically yet either. And so that is something that is yet to come. And then, of course, Revelation 13, we're given um, more information on what this abomination of desolation will be. Uh, but this this is something that helps us to understand that there is a day coming. And there are many other passages, by the way, Isaiah um, 35, 65, Zechariah 14, where there's mention of coming to Jerusalem during that time of the millennium and that during the kingdom when, when uh, Christ is reigning in that. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of passages throughout Scripture that speak of a very literal time and where a very literal kingdom is established where Christ literally rules and reigns with a rod of iron from Jerusalem uh, in Israel. So the millennium is a real thing that uh, that we expect to come about. This will come at the end, again, of man's dominion on the earth. Prior to that, you'll have the Ezekiel 37 and 38 scenario unfold. You'll have Daniel's 70th week unfold, the last seven-year period of time, beginning, as it says in Daniel 9.27, with the signing of a covenant uh, between uh, uh, this this one who signs it and the many. But we understand that this specifically um, at the heart of that uh, is Israel, which is we're told at the beginning of this uh, prophecy in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, but then also we're told in chapter 9, verse 27, how the uh, offerings and sacrifices are caused to cease by this one who signs the treaty halfway through uh, the, the the time of the treaty. Uh, and so um, we know that um, um, that this is going to, you know, this last seven-year period of time is going to unfold. Uh, ultimately, the end of that 70th week uh, comes to an end because of Christ's return when he ultimately, uh, again, casts the Antichrist, the false prophet, into the 
uh, lake of fire, and that as we see in, in Revelation 19, and then Christ establishes his kingdom. At the end of the millennial kingdom, as uh, Phil makes reference to here, there is one final rebellion where Satan is loosed at the end of those thousand years, and he is set forth around the earth. Again, here is the intent being at the end of this thousand years, the thousand, by the way, uh, is mentioned six times in seven verses, I think. And uh, um, and at the end of that thousand years, Satan is loosed to go and deceive the nations and as many as he can. And these whom he deceives come against Christ in the uh, in Jerusalem. Well, again, that's that's speaks very plainly of events taking place on the earth at the end of the millennial kingdom. And so, and then, of course, Christ once again puts that rebellion down, and then comes the white throne judgment. Then there's a new heavens and a new earth as the book of Revelation comes to a close. And so, um, so that's what the millennium's about. Do I think that we rule and reign with Christ? I do. Again, I think that a passage like Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 4, um, again, following that unfolding description of the events, I think uh, points to that. Um, you know, is it, is it, um, is it, does it come right out and say that the saints who, you know, um, uh, were raptured away prior to the 70th week of Daniel will rule on thrones? It doesn't say it's quite so explicitly, but it does seem to follow naturally in that regard. Now, I, I, in concert with that, by the way, just as a closing thought, um, the fact that we have been grafted into the vine, um, Paul makes this argument um, in, uh, in, Revel- in um, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter, well, 9 through 11, but in uh, there's mention how um, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, ethnically speaking. That doesn't mean that they're set aside, but it does mean that not only is there a plan for God uh, that God has for Israel ethnically and nationally, but in terms of salvation, Gentiles have been grafted onto the Messianic vine, if you will. That that Messiah of Israel is not just the Messiah for Israel proper, but also for those who by the faith of Abraham also come to believe in him. And so, um, so for us to participate and rule and reign, you know, has further justification, I think, through that uh, whole um, element as well. So, um, so there you go. Hopefully that, you know, maybe uh, lends some weight to the argument. Um, um, you know, you can be the judge of that, I guess. But uh, anyway, Phil, thank you so much for the question. Again, thank you for the kind words. I always agree, uh, appreciate interacting with you online. And uh, this was a great question, and I'm glad to... Um, to take a minute to try and speak to it. So if you have any questions or comments or anything like that, like Phil, feel free to go ahead and, and share them either via, via email at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com or if you want to uh, just put them in the comments section below. Uh, I do try to read all the comments. I, I'm sorry I don't always get back to every one, but I do pick a, a pretty a significant number of them to actually post on because they're good questions that I imagine that others are wondering about as well. If, if you're wondering, probably others are too. So I try to, to to address some of those. So thanks again for watching and listening. Thank you for joining in and for taking some time. And uh, until we meet again, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace forever. Father, we do thank you for the plans and purposes that you are working out in our day and in the days soon coming yet ahead. We thank you for all that you have revealed to us in your word, and we just pray that we would be good stewards of those truths and that we would act upon them. We would respond to them. We pray for them to come about as Jesus told us uh, to, and we just thank you that we are part of, of what you're doing. 
We thank you that one day we'll breathe our last on earth and our first in heaven, and what a glorious time that will be, and how exciting it is to think that that might be soon. So thank you, Father. We just pray that Jesus would, in fact, come quickly to take us home, and that he would come back, and that we'd return with him to establish that kingdom that you've spoken so much about in your word. We thank you and praise you for all of these things, and your glorious plans and purposes once again unfolding. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.